Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hey, welcome in. It is indeed, as the gentleman said, Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Carrie, episode number 180. We get to 200, Carrie, I believe we get a tie clasp. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Just a little, little bonus, a little something extra there. Uh, this week on the program, we'll talk to a couple authors about brand spanking new books that are quite well-written, wonderful to read. In the second half, a little bit of baseball. 60 years ago, Yankee duo of Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle chased Babe Ruth's home run record. Roger Maris would be the one, the one to get that record. It's all chronicled in a great new book by Tony Castro called Maris and Mantle. That's coming up later in the podcast. But up first, author Kate Clifford Larson joins us to talk about her powerful new biography of civil rights pioneer Fannie Lou Hamer. It's called Walk With Me. Here's Kate Clifford Larson on Downtown. Kate, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I knew some of the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, but, but as much as I knew, I had no idea about some of the obstacles she had to overcome in our journey. And it, it's clear from reading your book why she was and continues to be a hero to so many. Right. I mean, she was just an ordinary person who came out of the most difficult circumstances in the Mississippi Delta to arrive on the national civil rights scene and really take on the world and, and change things for everybody. Given her background, how unlikely was it she would make that appearance at the 1964 Democratic Convention? Well, considering her background and her limited education and access to resources, it was pretty improbable that she would end up at the, the Democratic Convention in 1964 and testify on national TV about the treatment of African Americans in Mississippi. So to come from her very humble sharecropping um, roots to that platform was pretty powerful, and it, it's a testament to what a great leader she was um, from Mississippi. I hope I get this right. She was the 20th of 20 children, is that correct? Yes, she was, and seven of the children before her had died um, because the access to health care and to the poor nutrition and the circumstances of the, the poverty that they live with. As for African Americans in Mississippi, the survival rate for children was much lower than it was for white children. How important was her mother, Ella, to her story? Oh, Ella was an amazing woman. She did everything she possibly could to make sure that her children survived and thrived. And she was a very proud, demanding mother. And Fannie Lou admired her greatly. And her mother really doted on Fannie Lou as the last child and helped, you know, nurture her and help her form these leadership skills and um, identity that served her well during the Civil Rights Movement. It, it is so powerful and, and harrowing to learn about her background, and it really illustrates that that then, and, and I'm not sure we're, we're completely on the other side of this yet, that we really had two completely different Americas. 
We did. I mean, you know, America has struggled with issues of race for, since its founding, but in the South, in, uh, in Mississippi, the most violent state in the nation that has the leading number of lynchings in the whole country, um, it was a, a very, very segregated, uh, violent place, and um, African Americans suffered greatly uh, living there. And it was their home place, too, but they were not considered equal citizens to whites in that state at that time. We're talking with Kate Clifford Larson about her terrific new book, Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. I, I did not know the details of uh, what was known as a Mississippi appendectomy. Could you tell that story? Um, Fannie Lou Hamer struggled with fertility issues and discovered that she had um, uterine tumors. So she went to a white doctor in Ruleville, Mississippi, where she lived, and he said that he could take care of the tumors for her. And what he actually did was give her a total hysterectomy without her knowledge. Um, and this was a thing um, that happened in Mississippi and other states where poor and or black women were um, sterilized against their will and without their permission, sometimes without their knowledge. They'd go in for an appendectomy and they'd come out without their uterus. And so it was called a Mississippi appendectomy because it happened so frequently. And it turns out that it, it happened a lot and it was not made illegal until 1973. But this happened to her and it destroyed her her sense of self and uh, took away her ability to have children with her husband, Pap Hamer. What was the turning point that led her to become an activist? I think the sterilization was one turning point. She was sick and tired, and she used to say that all the time, um, of the mistreatment and the violence, the lack of fair wages and access to good housing and health care and, and just being treated as a, an equal citizen in that society. And so um, after the sterilization, she thought she needed to fight for a change, and registering to vote was that first step she needed to do. And in Mississippi, uh, white people prevented black people from voting, so the registration process was onerous. Half the population was uh, black, but only about 5% could vote because of the restrictions that um, had been put in place to prevent them from voting. So she struggled to make that an easier process, and she did end up registering to vote, but it was a long battle to change the laws in Mississippi so that everybody would have access to the ballot. Well, and how, how true all of this rings now, given where we are in America with more efforts in the especially southern states to repress voting once again. That's right. You know, in the 1960s, um, laws were passed to change the uh, the customs and the laws in uh, the southern states that prevented African Americans from voting. Poll taxes and literacy tests and redistricting and violence at the polls and things like that. So those were made illegal, but there have been um, changes in the court since then that are allowing certain states to reenact some of those restrictions to voting, and so it's reminiscent of those years. Hamer would be surprised, I think, but also deep down she would say that she was seeing it coming for a long time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what happened uh, to her in Winona? It was gut-wrenching to read about it in the book, and, and how that changed her as a person. 
Well, once she became involved in the uh, civil rights movement at the encouragement of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a group of young people involved in the movement like Congressman John Lewis and um, Bob Moses, um, she registered to vote. Eventually, they hired her as an older elder mentor to work with them, and she was out there trying to get people to register to vote. She took classes um, through different civil rights organizations, and on a bus ride back from South Carolina, after taking some of these citizenship courses, um, she was stopped with her colleagues on a bus in Winona, Mississippi, and arrested because they tried to integrate the bus station and uh, the restaurant there. And they were brought to the Winona, Mississippi jail, where they were brutally beaten, and um, Hamer was sexually assaulted. And for four days, they lived in terror and fear. Um, when she came out of it, she survived the beating and the assault. And she just, uh, with her faith, she was deeply, deeply spiritual and, and believed that God would show the way. And she came out of that and survived and recommitted herself to making a change in Mississippi and in the whole country. There were, of course, different approaches to the civil rights movement, but even knowing that, I was surprised uh, to read in your book that uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP said that he was embarrassed by Fannie Lou. So Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was confronted by the elitism in the movement. It was mostly run by elite, better educated men, and uh, the women were often, you know, lower on the totem pole. And Fannie Lou Hamer posed a problem because not only was she not well educated, she only had a sixth grade education, but she was poor. So she didn't dress in the latest fashions, and her diction was not what these elite men like Roy Wilkins wanted to be heard on national stages. So they were very critical of her, not of her message, but her presence and her her the way she spoke, and um, but she represented millions of Americans who were also subjugated, and they recognized her in 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 her speeches and her singing, in her voice, in the messages that she, you know, said on stage. So even though it hurt her feelings and it was quite cruel, she knew that she had something to say and um, could make a difference. So she she just ignored the people like Roy Wilkins who tried to silence her. Looking back from our perspective here in 2021, uh, it's staggering to me to imagine the courage that it must have taken for her to run for office above the legislature in Mississippi and for the United States Senate. Right. And she knew that she would not win because um, African-Americans weren't allowed to vote. So the vote was skewed. Um, But it was courageous because the violence against African-Americans in Mississippi, for instance, was so tremendous if they tried to register to vote or for someone like that who wanted to run for office, that she was threatened every single day. And it is surprising that she was not killed because there were civil rights workers uh, in Mississippi, black and white, who were murdered during the civil rights movement to prevent them from making a change. And that was so uh, powerful to read about as well, uh, her relationship uh, with with Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner of the Freedom Riders. Right. Those were three young men who were um, 
uh, Freedom Summer, workers who came to help people register to vote, and they were murdered um, that Freedom Summer in 1964 before the Democratic Convention. And their bodies were discovered in an earthen dam um, just a few days before the convention. And so their memory, their story was brought to the convention, too, to tell the world what was going on in places like Mississippi and that um, African Americans, black people, needed the right to vote and they should be represented on the floor of the convention to vote for the Democratic Party nominees. And um, it was quite a struggle for Fannie Lou Hamer and her colleagues from Mississippi. Obviously, she was a big inspiration to women, but also uh, in the book, people like Andrew Young uh, talk about how she inspired him to run for office as well. What is the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer? So she really inspired a lot of young people. Her passion, her courage, her her steadfast faith, her belief in her community, and what she did for her family, it inspired a lot of these young people, some of them very well educated, um, like the Martin Luther Kings, but they were much younger and they worked directly with her. And they could see her leadership skills and that they understood that leaders come from those landscapes that they were working on. They didn't come in there and tell people what to do. They found the leaders already there and supported them and helped them rise up to carry their message to the country. And Andrew Young and Bob Moses and John Lewis, they all were mesmerized by her leadership and um, her courage. And, you know, how could they back down if this older, middle-aged, not very well-educated black sharecropper could stand up and face down those white supremacists? Then they certainly could, too. Uh, well, as somebody who teaches U.S. history to high school students, uh, this was a wonderful read for me. I am so happy to learn more about Fannie Lou Hamer. I hope to spread that story to young people, but I wish everybody uh, would read Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. It is uh, an important piece of work. Kate Clifford Larson, thank you so much for talking about it with us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Kate Clifford Larson talking about her new book, Walk With Me, a biography of of Fannie Lou Hamer. We'll take a pause for a quick word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we go back in time 60 years, the chase for Babe Ruth's home run record, Maris and Mantle, chronicled in a new book by Tony Castro. Tony talks about it with us next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I love Mickey. Mickey who? You know who, the fellow with the celebrated swing. Oh, I love Mickey. Mickey who? You know who, the one who drives me batty every spring. To carry. Anytime you think you were... You were born too late. You listen mm-hmm. to something like that and go, no, I'm all, I'm all set. <laughs> I missed it by seven years. Okay, I can live with it. That's all right. Teresa Brewer doing I Love Mickey <laughs> with the help of Mickey himself, Mickey Mantle. It's charming. Hey. Anybody doing I Love Mookie these days? No, I don't think so, no. I mean, I had to live through the icky shuffle. This, this holds oh. up well compared to well, that. That's, that's a good point. 
Well, uh, what's better than listening to this is to uh, read the brand new book from Tony Castro called Marison Mantle, Two Yankees, Baseball Immortality and the Age of Camelot. A look back uh, at the events that led to the remarkable 1961 season and the chase for Babe Ruth's home run record. Here's our conversation with Tony Castro on downtown. Thank you for having me on. What a wonderful read this was and a, and a fascinating story. Now, you have you have written a lot about Mickey Mantle through the years, uh, but this story in particular is so interesting, and, and you've uncovered so much new information. Roger Maris is someone that I, I never interviewed. There is an interview in the book, and I was, you know, I have to take my hat off to my good friend Peter Golenbach, another author who's written a great deal about Yankees, and I hesitated for a while about doing this book, and then Peter and, I, and Peter wanted to know why, and a couple other people. I said because I never uh, had several opportunities, never got, uh, never took them as far as interviewing Roger back in the day. And uh, Peter pulled out an interview he had with Maris back in 1973. He had never used it, never used it in any of his books, and it's a wonderful uh, piece of journalism. He was gracious and. And so kind to share it with me, and to this day has not seen, he hasn't used it, and I guess he'll, he said he would wait until after this book came out. So uh, this book profits a great deal from that particular interview. I studied Roger a great deal uh, uh, without thinking of writing a book about it because of his Eastern European heritage, uh, something that uh, today is not known very well about me is that I did a lot of civil rights reporting back in the 70s. I wrote a book about uh, the civil rights movement back in uh, 1974 and uh, then spent a lot of time at uh, Back East studying uh, more about this. I was a, a pointy-headed professor type uh, <laughs> uh, looking for a job, as it were. And one of the things that happened was meeting some people, that, had, including one who wrote a book about Eastern European immigrants into the United States. And his book was... Uh, Unmeltable white ethnics, and it went into how Eastern European ethnics were different than uh, who were white for all intents and purposes, were different than traditional European uh, immigrants who were also white and who we usually reference in terms of uh, European immigrants. You know, the Irish, uh, especially uh, the English, uh, and uh, uh, others as it were. Well, Roger's family was from Eastern Europe, and a particular kind of background, and I go into a great deal of this in the book. Uh, and, you know, today, especially, we speak so much about immigrants and immigrant stories, and we're talking about an entirely different immigrant group, of course, from a different different parts of the, uh, of the world. But in essence, it's still the same old story of immigrants, whether it's uh, the Gehrig family or whether it's the Maris family. And the Maris family had a very difficult time early on uh, when you know, arriving here, uh, Maris being born in, uh, in uh, Minnesota and then moving to, uh, to North Dakota and having a chip on his shoulder that if he were Hispanic or Asian, you would say, well, it's that immigrant chip on his shoulder. Well, he had a chip on his shoulder, but it was from being an Eastern European immigrant. And as you point out in the book, Tony, uh, even the spelling of Roger Maris's name was uh, different than what we've come to know it as. Right. It was Maraz, M-A-R-A-S. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it was pronounced. I mean, depending on who you talk to, uh, Maraz uh, and 
when he played uh, in college, he was upset that uh, opponents, announcers would call him Maraz, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> as, as they will, you know, trying to get on somebody's case. And Roger, I mean, I, sensitivity, oversensitivity, overreaction to remarks is something that is well associated with Roger Maris, as well as should be, I think. I think he earned that uh, honor or that right to, to be acknowledged as being super sensitive. And so, yeah, uh, this uh, the family changed that name when Roger was, uh, uh, you know, still in his early 20s. It's very interesting to me when you look at their childhoods, uh, while they had different backgrounds, both Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris certainly, you can say, had challenging childhoods. They did. You know, uh, Mickey's wife, Merlin, once argued that, uh, and strongly so, I think, and convincingly, that Mickey didn't really have much of a childhood because his afternoons, after he was old enough to swing a bat, consisted of him uh, waiting for his father to come home, and then he took batting practice from his father and his grandfather. And this would go on until uh, dinner time, uh, which was usually uh, as it was getting dark there in uh, in Commerce, Oklahoma. And uh, people that you talked to who knew Mickey uh, at that time say pretty much the same thing, that he uh, his life was centered and after school as they were growing up was centered for the most part around playing baseball. And not like you and I might have done it when we were kids with our friends, but playing baseball with uh, his father and grandfather. And, I mean, and how can you have a childhood when that's what's going on? Right. And, and it like was stage fathers and stage mothers today. Right. As you point out, it, it was... It was an obsession in many ways with Mutt, although, as we learn in the book, uh, dealing with two parents who had some unique parenting styles, uh, as difficult as it had to be for Mickey growing up with those high expectations from his dad, uh, that might have been easier than dealing with a very distant mother. The mother was extremely distant. She was a little older, you know, uh, 10 years older than than Mutt. Uh, The story uh, of how Mutt married her, uh, met her, is an interesting one in itself. Uh, Mutt, when he was, uh, uh, I guess, 18 or 19, went over to uh, court someone. And when he gets there, uh, it's actually uh, the woman who he went to see was not the woman that he wound up meeting. He wound up meeting the woman that he married who had just returned home, uh, having been married to someone else, uh, having had uh, a couple of kids. And... Somehow she, you know, she's the one that uh, wanted to, uh, to eventually be with, and she was ten years older. A thing that did, nobody ever made anything of it until later, when Mantle was uh, a rookie in 1951. Mickey was already engaged to Merlin, but he fell in love with a, a showgirl, uh, for lack of a better expression. She was an actress there in New York. He fell in love with her, and she was 26 and had a kid. And when the father, when he introduced her to, to Mutt there during that uh, 1951 season, Mutt objected to her and said, you know, she's much old, too, much too old for you, Mickey. And Mickey's response was, well, you know, mom was 10 years older than you when, uh, when you married her and she'd already had two kids. 
Let's talk about that woman if we can, because I, I think uh, your story would not be what it is without uh, your ability to track down and have lots of conversations with this woman by the name of Holly Brooke. Can you explain how you got together and, and what a big part she is of the Mickey Mantle story? In 2002 is when Mickey Mantle, America's Prodigal Son, came out. And about four years later, I got a call from my agent here in Los Angeles, and he said, look, uh, this man's been trying to reach you, uh, talk to him. His name is, uh, I forget, uh, his first name's last name was uh, Whalebrook, or Holybrook, or something like this. And I'm thinking, okay, fine, you know, and I, uh, I figured he was probably calling to gripe, maybe even try to sue me on something. I have no idea. You, you never know when you've written a book and you're getting calls four years later after the fact. And it turned out that this was a grown man who, when he was a young kid, had an aunt, an Aunt Holly, who, I guess, used to talk to the kids and tell them these stories about having known Mickey Mantle back in the day and having been Mickey Mantle's girlfriend. So he's calling to tell me, look, uh, Mr. Castro, thank you for uh, including her in your biography about Mickey Mantle. Because until this, we didn't know that this was even true. We just thought this was crazy Aunt Holly talking out, you know, off the side of her head <laughs> about something that she wants us to believe about having known Mickey Mantle, and it turns out to be true. And uh, I said, yeah, I mean, tell me about her, because I, several of us have been looking for her over the years. No one's been able to find her, and we just assumed she passed away. When did she pass? And he said, she's still alive. She married quite well. She married a, a Broadway producer. And she's up in her years, but she lives uh, in some building next to Trump Tower. They're off Central Park in New York. Do you want to meet her? Did I ever? And <laughs> so I met her and began talking to her like three, four, five times a week, uh, visitor even. And it was uh, just a delight. You know, she had uh, on some day toward the end, some days were better than others as far as her memory and her recollection of these stories. And uh, pictures, notebooks that she had uh, of that particular period. Uh, and several biographers, uh, not just myself, had written little bits and pieces about Mickey having met this person, but no one had met her and no one had been able to track her down. And uh, part of the reason was that uh, Holly Brooke, her real name was this H-U-Y-L-E-B-R-U-C-K-E, I believe. That was actually her last name, but she had gone professionally as Holly Brooke, which if you take that name and break it down phonetically, it winds up being like Holly Brooke. <laughs> so uh, that's how we didn't, we couldn't find her. And I know Jane Levy tried to reach her, and I know Peter tried for several years. Peter Golenbach tried to reach her. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I think one or two other people have as well. I mean, you'd be negligent not to try to find her. But she couldn't be found, at least uh, uh, several of us who tried very hard couldn't. We're talking with Tony Castro. His new book is Maris and Mantle, Two Yankees, Baseball, Immortality, and the Age of Camelot. Uh, the Mantle story and how he uh, rose up to join the Yankees, a highly touted prospect, the whole Tom Gre uh, Greenwade situation, very well documented, although you unearth a lot of new details in this book. Uh, the Maris story I find equally interesting because even though he didn't come to the Yankees for several years, George Weiss and others had their eye on him for quite some time. They did. When I mean, he signed with uh, the Cleveland Indians, he was 
you know, the Indians thought he was going to be part of their team that was going to, uh, at one point, make a run against the Yankees during the 50s. They had people like Herb Score. They had Al Rosen. They had, uh, you know, Bobby Avila, who had been a batting champion that great 54 year of, of theirs. And they thought they had the makings with Roger Maris to be someone in there. They had Rocky Colavito and on and on. But it didn't work out that way through uh, tragedy, you know, with what happened to Herb Score being hit from the uh, pitch ball to Gil McDougal to uh, injuries. And uh, among them, uh, Roger Maris, who Roger was, Mar- Roger was uh, injured so often in his career that that 1961 season was one of the few times when he played an entire season without any debilitating injuries, injuries that took him either out of the lineup or limited his, uh, his ability to play at his top level. Now, Mickey Mantle had come off some tremendous years in the mid-50s, a triple crown season in 1956, a great year in 57 as well, but then had really slumped in 1959. And as you say in your book, in many ways, the trade they made to pick up Roger Maris really revitalized Mickey Mantle's career. Mantle, uh, I mean, who would have thought that in 1958, or after the 59 season, actually, uh, Mantle could have been at the end of his uh, career? Uh, certainly not Mantle. I mean, after the 1956 season, he had even said he was glad, uh, he was so happy, he would have preferred, rather, to have broken to have won the Triple Crown and to have broken Babe Ruth's record there in 56 because if he, at his age, if he get, got to play another 12 to 14 years, he felt just very confident he'd, he'd be able to break Babe Ruth's record. I mean, who would have thought that uh, Mickey could have been thinking, my God, have I reached the end of my time in 1959? But he had such a bad year that they cut his salary. I think it was like $7,000 pay cut. And he was down in the dump, and then this great trade is made. And everyone was familiar with, uh, uh, on the Yankees team was familiar with, uh, with Maris, and several people thought that this trade was somehow going to happen, especially with Roger being traded from the Indians to the uh, Kansas City uh, Athletics, which at the time was nothing more than a Major League Baseball team that was a wholly owned subsidiary of the New York Yankees. <laughs> And people kept going back and forth there. And uh, if they needed seasoning or if they just needed another ball pair, why go to the AAA when your AAA team when you've got the athletics ready to trade you whoever they want? And that's what happened with Maris. Maris comes over, and uh, uh, 1960 revitalizes the Yankees. The Yankees, you know, arguably should have won the World Series that year. They didn't. Uh, you know, Blaine can be. Blaine is always put on Casey Stingle for the way he pitched uh, his staff in the, that World Series. Uh, but 61 was an entirely different story. You know, Stingle was no longer there. It was uh, a Yankees, uh, unlike any of the other Yankee teams uh, uh, in that uh, preceding decade. And you talk about the difference that Ralph Hoke made, especially on. Well, a couple of sensitive guys like Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. It was just a different approach and one that that seemed to give them uh, more respect and more freedom than they were used to under Stengel. Yeah. uh, Well, Maris only played one year for Stengel. Right. And 
Maris is not Maris never really listened to his managers. I mean, a couple of managers at minors and majors had lost their jobs, arguably because of, of Roger Maris and their failure to handle him. And uh, with Mantle, yeah, I mean, uh, Ralph Houck uh, took Mantle aside and said, this is a story that uh, uh, has been told by several people, took Mantle aside at the beginning of the season and said, you know, I want you to be the leader of this team. This is your team. Mickey thought that Ralph had gone to uh, Yogi Berra and others had said the same thing, but he hadn't, and he found out that he hadn't. And uh, the rest of the team was also energized by how he changed the way he used Whitey Ford, for instance. Mm. In the past, Whitey Ford had never won 19 games in any season. He had come close once, I guess in 1956, when he won 19, and um, Mantle blamed himself for losing uh, a ball, uh, a fly ball, and costing Whitey a game in uh, in 1956, it would have been his 20th victory. But he had never won 20 games. And here in 1961, being able to pitch on a regular schedule, he won 25. Um, and with Mantle, it was also a case of not being treated like a child by his manager. And I think that was part of what might have hurt Mickey at various times in those years leading up to 1961 that uh, you had a manager who was, you know, Casey Stingle had not had, uh, was fatherless. And the story is that Casey looked upon Mickey as the kid he'd created, uh, the player he'd created, and that uh, he was, you know, incredibly disappointed by him because he expected much more. Uh, And you'll remember that in 1951, it was it was actually Casey Stingle who talked up Mickey Mantle as the next Ruth, the next right. Gehrig, uh, the successor to DiMaggio, long before anybody else did. And today, you would never have a manager or anyone in any position of authority uh, putting that kind of great expectation on a prized young 19-year-old. And one of the things that Hug did that turned out to be very successful in 1961 was to make a change in the batting order. Mantle uh, wound up batting number four, and I think that started uh, in 1960. Uh, but certainly by 61, that became commonplace where Mantle was play, batting fourth and protecting, as the, the term goes, as far as baseball lineup talk goes, uh, protecting Maris batting number three. Maris never drew a, an intentional walk in 1961, which tells you that, you know, they. <laughs> They wanted to pitch to Maris, or at least they weren't going to put him on base to pitch to Mantle. I mean, are you crazy? No, they're, they're not going to do that. So he never had a, a base on ball, uh, an intentional base on ball. And uh, it's probably one of the reasons that Mantle uh, lost out in that race. There were several other factors, but certainly being protected by uh, Mickey Mantle as opposed to the other way around, Mickey Mantle batting third being protected by oh by uh, Roger Maris. You know, had that been the case, who knows what would have happened. Now, it was Mickey Mantle that got off to the great start in the 61 season, but eventually uh, Roger Maris would heat up, and by midsummer they were neck and neck. And and you say in the book that it was around All-Star break time in 61 that the pressure really began to build when it became clear that both these guys had a shot at beating Babe Ruth's record. Yeah, and Mantle, maybe because of the 1956 season, 
maybe because of everything he'd been through. He was familiar with the uh, with the booing uh, that could go on at Yankee Stadium. He was familiar with the Yankee fans, and he was a little older. Uh, he was three years older than than Roger, and he'd been through it uh, a few times. And Mantle also had the kind of attitude that he didn't really care one way or the other what they thought about him. Uh, he he had seen it. So it didn't get to Mickey the way it got to, to Roger Maris. Uh, part of it also was that reality is that by this time, Mickey was a fan favorite. Mm. He was a, a reporter's favorite. Roger, on the other hand, it almost seemed at times that he went out of his way to, uh, uh, to antagonize uh, the working press that was following the team at that time, both the uh, working for the New York media and others that were drawn to the ongoing story of this uh, uh, this chase of Babe Ruth's record. Much has been written about the relationship between Mantle and Maris in that 61 season, but but what is clear in your book is that, yeah, they were competitive. They certainly, uh, they certainly fed off each other, but there was also friendship and support there. There was. You know, we forget sometimes that when, uh, a young player comes up to uh, the major league teams. Sometimes he comes up to a team where his childhood or teenage or uh, you know high school uh, age hero is on that team, and that was the case here. In 1951, when Mantle got off to that great start, and there were stories about this before he ever played a major league game in that spring training. There were stories about him in national magazines. Mickey Mantle was a known commodity by the time he played his first major league game in uh, 1951. Roger Maris at that time was a, a 16-year-old high school sophomore. And he Mantle was among his, uh, his heroes at that time. And so you have this happening, you know, 10 years later or, you know, nine years later uh, in, in 16 and 61 where he's playing in the same, you know, he's playing in the same outfield as his, a high school hero, Mickey Mantle. So he looked up to Mickey the way you would uh, imagine that kind of scenario to work out, respected him a great deal. And Mantle, on the other hand, worked as a different kind of a thing. It wasn't so much his older brother as it was looking at Roger Maris and in some ways seeing the man that Mantle was not. And that was something that went on until you know, 1985 when Roger died. Uh, and Mantle at the at Roger's funeral is just bawling his face out, you know, from just the loss of of, Man, of Maris and and dealing with that, and talking about how Roger was a much better man than he ever would be. Ford Frick, of course, insisted that uh, the asterisk be placed next to Roger Maris's uh, home run record as a result of that, and and there were those who, until 1985 and maybe beyond, would question the validity of the record because it was done in a 162-game schedule. In some way, Tony, did it fuel the Mickey Mantle legend even more that he was unable to to finish that season strong and get that record? Well, uh, you're saying... I, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't. Uh, you cut out on me here. I, I'm wondering if the fact that he would, that Mickey Mantle was unable to break that record, uh, in, instead, did that fuel his legend even more and make people embrace him more? I think they already were up until that point, but then he fell behind, and in September, uh, 
Mick just wasn't feeling well. You know, he went into September trailing Roger by a home run or two, but still trailing him. And then he got, uh, he just didn't feel well. And that proved to be costly because uh, the story is that Mel Allen, the great voice of the Yankees, said to Mick, look, I know this guy back in uh, New York who can take care of you. He'll shoot you up with a, a vitamin shot that will make you feel better. He, he does this for all kinds of celebrities, and he named off. Uh, uh, I mean, this was even somebody who had treated the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, and had uh, treated the first lady after she had lost uh, 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 their baby. And Mantle, uh, you know, they were on a long road trip. Mantle gets back to uh, New York gets this injection, and everything goes to hell. You know, Mickey, there's, uh, uh, Mickey has a bad reaction to the shot, the hip to which the shot, the injection was uh, done, uh, becomes inflamed and infected, and uh, it was effectively the end of, uh, of Mantle's season. And he, it, I think after that... Uh, after that road trip, he had hit one home run. He ends up at 54 for the season. And Maris, by this time, is already like at 58, 59. He hit 60. Uh, uh, at, actually, he hit 60 at, uh, at a period that became kind of debatable. But, you know, if, if you look at, at what was done on, uh, on the home runs, I was checking this the other day, that, Maris hit his 60th home run in his 684th plate appearance that season. Right. Ruth didn't hit his 60th until he had stepped to the batter's box for the 689th time in 1927. So even though Mantle, even though Ruth had uh, had hit the home run in uh, 154 games, he did it in more at bat, uh, more plate appearances than Roger Maris did in hitting his 60. And of course, his 61 uh, didn't come didn't come into game 162 uh, of that season. The book is Maris and Mantle: Two Yankees, Baseball Immortality, and the Age of Camelot. It is a fascinating story, brilliantly researched. Tony Castro, I enjoyed the book so much. It was great to have the opportunity to talk uh, about it with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you, Rich. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Tony Castro, the book is called Maris and Mantle. Very well-researched, a terrific read. Thanks to Tony for being with us and to Kate Clifford Larson, who discussed her book, Walk With Me, biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. And thanks to you for being here to listen to the whole thing. Otherwise, it's just me and Carrie chatting with with each other, which we would do. But I don't know, it just feels, well, it feels a little wicked knowing you're listening in. And we like that. So thanks for joining us this week. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we will see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.